This is Cup Go for May 15th, 2023. Keep up to date with the important happenings in the Go community in about 15 minutes per week. I'm your co-host, Shai Nechmat. And I'm your co-host, Jonathan Hall. What's up, Jonathan? Hey. It's, it's been a long weekend. It's survey season. It sure is. Survey says you're in for a good time. Don't miss Family Feud. Yeah, we should do Go Family Feud. <laughs> That's a good idea. Sounds like a great meetup sort of event, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Get some contestants up on stage. Yeah. Which is your, if you have to log, which library are you logging? Are you using? <laughs> Survey, Survey says, says. go kids slash logging. <laughs> Slowly all the answers are going to become standard library though, right? With yeah, less log right. and stuff like that. Right. All right. We have a ton of stuff to go to and talk about this week. Oh, we're going to mention the survey, of course. It is survey season. Uh, but let's start mm-hmm. off with some conferences. What conferences yes. are coming up? Yes, we mentioned a couple last week. We're not going to mention those again today, except in this very sentence. Uh, but we do have two new conferences to mention. <laughs> uh, coming up in June, uh, Go, for Con- Go for China will be in Beijing uh, June 9 through 11. Uh, we'll have links to that in the show notes. And Go for Con Europe in Berlin, June 26 through 29. So if you're in China or in Europe, be sure to check those out. Um, I was thinking of going to the GopherCon Europe, but it's just not in the cards for me this year. But I may be going to some other European conferences later in the year, in November and September. So we'll see. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed that you make it to GopherCon Israel. That would be fun. I've never been to Israel at all, let alone to GopherCon. I've never been to GopherCon, honestly. So that would be great. Well, you... I've been to, I've talked at the GopherCon and uh, you're an official Go contributor and between the two of us we make one good uh, Go community member. <laughs> awesome. So, yeah, check out those conferences if you're in those areas, but let's talk about what's on everybody's mind, which is the the Go Dev Survey. It came out last week. Um, what can you tell us about it, Shai? There are, were a lot of responders. Almost a uh, 6,000 respondents shared how they're using Go, what are their challenges, um, what are their priorities for you know, future improvements, which coincides pretty well with our audience numbers as well. Uh, we've had about 6K people uh, listen and download the show already. Uh, <laughs> so I assume every single uh, respondent is also someone who's listening. So thank you. Um, I'm sure there's no flaw in that logic at all. Uh, it makes sense to me. 6K here, yeah. 6K there. It has Must to be, be the same 6K. Yeah, yeah. It has to be. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little proud that maybe one or two people responded because we mentioned the survey a few months yeah. ago. And we were like, go, go fill it out. Um, but it, these results can help the Go team, you know, focus on what matters to the community. Um and also the people who you know contribute to and support the Go ecosystem, um, whether they be open source uh, maintainers or podcasters or blog writers, um, they can focus their efforts according to what the community said. And there are a few highlights. Uh, you can go check out the survey for yourself. It's in the Go Dev blog. It's the top post right now, and we'll also post the link. Uh, you know, in the show notes. So before you listen to our hot take or, you know, the inevitable uh, Reddit flaming post that will pop up uh, next week, um, <laughs> just go read it for yourself, right? Yeah. Um, but if you want our hot take on it, uh, we can go through some of the key findings and the highlights and the f- stuff that we found interesting. What stood out specifically to you, John? Well, you know, I, I can't pass up the opportunity to talk about that I use Linux because that was in the survey that Linux ties Mac OS for the number of people using it to program and go. Uh, at, at the advanced level or expert level, uh, 63% of expert Go developers use Mac OS and 63% use Linux, which is interesting that there's 63% of both because that's more than 100. That means some people are using both operating systems. Um, but even at the other levels, uh, it's virtually tied. So that, that's, that's my big hot take is, uh, I use Linux. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's, you have to tell us. So, right. It's obligatory. <laughs> um, but uh, to me, it's a uh, Mac and uh, windows, unfortunately, but just because I'm, I'm a gamer. So my uh, home machine is, uh, windows, 
But now I have my own separate dev machine, and that's a Mac. So I guess I'm okay. going to be 100% Mac uh, from now on. Uh, for shadowing for later, there's the uh -huh. Stack Overflow uh, survey that's open now. Yeah. And yeah. there I only filled Mac for next year, because I don't imagine okay. I'm going to be using anything else for coding. I did do a little Go development in Windows, or actually WSL, for a little while, and it was gaming-related. I was using uh, some Go scripts to to build some mods for Fallout 4. So, uh, But I haven't done that since I, my kid was born two and a half years ago. <laughs> haven't had time. Fallout 4 <laughs> in general, <laughs> yeah. Right, exactly. Um, so what stood out to me was the groups of responders that... Mm -hmm. um, if you go back through our episode catalog when we talked about this survey structure, one thing that I really liked is how they structured if you program at work in Go, program in Go outside of work, um, program at work in another language, which is sort of you know very interesting compared to the immediate next result, which is how satisfied are you with Go? So overwhelmingly, people are very satisfied with Go. Um, this is obviously self-selecting. People who want to respond to the survey are probably pretty happy with Go anyways, and people who hate it don't want to contribute. Uh, so, But even so, uh, my experience is that programmers are uh, not very optimistic, usually very negative, and like to complain a lot. <laughs> and even with that bias, 92% of responders um, said they are satisfied with Go. Uh, and, you know, the 4% uh, are on the fence and only 4% are dissatisfied. So generally, you know, my vibe when I work in Go and, or when I work with Go developers is that we're having fun. The problems and the challenges that we're facing are the actual problems and the challenges that we want to solve, right? Like, how do we want this service to work? Or what should we query from the database? Or like the actual business problem uh, the applied business problem we're trying to solve and not like arguing with the language, um, which, you know, not to compare negatively on any other language, but I think that, you know, I, I look back at other languages or tools I had to use and let's say, you know, the, it's, there, there were tools that were less ergonomic. You know, trying to write XSLT files <laughs> is a lot worse than trying to write Go code um, yeah. in work or otherwise. You don't write and XSLT files outside of work just for fun? With my daughter. I sit with my oh. daughter and we paint XSLT files. As, as punishment? <laughs> you forgot to clean your room, go write some XSLT. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, <laughs> if, uh, yeah, if you're listening to this, I don't know, 10 years down the future, I would never do that. <laughs> that didn't happen. <laughs> um, another highlight I found interesting in the survey uh, was that learning was the respondent's top challenge. So mm -hmm. what they say here is that historically, lack of generics was the biggest challenge to using Go, uh, which I don't buy. People don't said either. that they wanted generics, but they don't actually need it. They don't actually use yeah. it. It's very edge casey. But now that they can't, it's something that they thought they needed, right? It was overused right. in other languages. But sure, if you're using it, great. Um, but... The comments right now are on error handling. Um, it's hard to read, or maybe it's too verbose, um, which is a common uh, thing people say about Go, right? Like, how many yeah. times can I read if error is different from nil? Um, but one thing I found very interesting was that people have difficulty learning best practices and just how to start with Go. This is very counterintuitive, at least to me, because Go seems like a very simple language, doesn't have a lot of keywords. I'm wondering where this is coming from, maybe because Go is usually a second language for people? I mean, I can speculate, and I think that's probably part of it. I think people have picked up bad habits. And honestly, I think those bad habits are often why people wanted generics, for, for example, or think the error handling is too verbose. Um, but, I mean, certainly when I was learning Go, I had difficulty trying to, you know, I... I, I came to go from a traditionally object-oriented language, and so I was trying to, you know, make Go's round peg fit into my square OOP hole, and it didn't work. And it took it took several months before it kind of snapped and and made sense. So I, I could definitely see that as a challenge for a lot of people. Any other highlights you found interesting? Yeah, I think I'll just point out one last thing before we move on, <clears throat> and that is one of the questions is in which area, if any, are you not using Go but you would most like to, Ooh. and. 
for the most part, and then they break it down by experience level, novice, intermediate, advanced, expert. For the most part, it's pretty flat. You know, people, some, you know, uh, 10 to 15% want to learn to do desktop and GUI applications. Uh, 10 to 12% want to do artificial intelligence. But there's two areas where the novice has really jumped out. And the biggest one is doing websites, uh, you know, services that return HTML. 13% of novices want to learn to do more of that compared to five to 4% of the others, the, the advanced and intermediates. And then right behind that, uh, the novices are also most interested in learning to do APIs and RPC services. So web services that return non-HTML with 8% and then the other levels are, are much lower. So it's kind of interesting that for the most part, the community agrees on what they want to learn to do, but novices in particular really want to learn to do web services. One thing I really like uh, about this result is that experts um, highlighted that they already use Go wherever they would like to, uh, which as an answer sort of has a two ways of looking at it, right? Oh, they use Go everywhere, or they use Go exactly where it's needed. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, and I have to admit I really agree with uh, the results. I don't want to build the desktop or GUI application, so it doesn't really fit my bill, but I really, really want to use Go for machine learning. For a client okay. job I'm doing right now, I'm doing Python and, oh my God, go, go Toolchain, I miss you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, so that's the, our highlights from the survey. Um, but obviously go read it for yourself. There are a lot of other interesting highlights, a lot of data you can uh, dive into. It's really well written and not too long. Uh, so go check it out. On the same topic, uh, the Stack Overflow dev survey is out. Another results, you can just fill it in. It's pretty long this year. Take, a, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes out of your time to, to fill it out. Yep, I do encourage you to fill it out. It does seem a little bit more commercial this time. Like it's, It seems like it's market research uh, for Stack Overflow, a little bit more than in past years, as opposed to just general trends but still i think I'm, I'm i'm looking forward to the results to see to see how it goes yeah i filled it out already uh this morning and it's different first of all there are a ton of questions about ai like a third yeah. of the surveys about ai and ai tooling and how do you use ai how do you think we should use ai for stack overflow exactly. um and also a lot of survey is focused on stack overflow for teams but i think you can that part is optional you can skip it which is fine mm -hmm. um Makes sense, you know, Stack Overflow feeling the the moat sort of uh, dry up around them. So you yep. need to be a bit protective. Uh, all right, and let's go to our normal uh, schedule programming. What's going on with proposals this week? Yeah, we have a lot of proposal news. Uh, we'll try to zip through it. Zip through it because Google now allows zip domains. Do they? Should we switch to cupago.zip? I am no, I don't, I don't condone that TLD. It's just okay. going to be used for malware, and yeah. I, I, you know, out of respect to the malware developers, I prefer they, you know, uh, open up a couple go .zip so people who want to download our episodes <laughs> or maybe get a zip file of all the merch options in our shop. Um, the malware, malware developers, you can take it on me on the house. Awesome. Nice. Uh, all right, let's zip through them. Yeah, so uh, this is a proposal we've actually been talking about for several months. Uh, it's about changing the semantics of loop variables. And you may recall that we talked about implementing the experiment to enable that feature, which has already been merged and been running on TIP. It's not, a, it's not released generally yet, but you can run it if you want to on TIP. But uh, this last week, Russ Cox submitted the final, I suppose, formal proposal to make the change, probably in Go 122, if the stars align. Uh, might be later if things don't uh, all align, but that, that's I think it's good news. Um, it's one of the things. It's sort of the, one of the warts on Go that's bothered a lot of people, newcomers especially. So it'll be nice to have that fixed. Uh, it'll be really nice once the versions where it's not fixed are completely deprecated. So you know, give us four years, we'll be there. Yeah, it'll take a while, but um, I think it's been thoroughly discussed. Um, and obviously, you know, we're talking about Rust, and you see in the issue it has like 500 upvotes and, and, and hearts and, and, and rocket ships. Um, so obviously we have to go to the competing uh, end of the spectrum, which is Reddit, where someone <laughs> just had to post, since go 1.22, the loop blah, blah, blah might never exit, <laughs> which is like the, literally the worst take on it. Um, 
very flame baity, and it was even locked and removed. So, so I'm I'm happy for our slash Golang. They're they're keeping stuff clean. When your when your flame bait is bad enough to get blocked on Reddit, you know you're you're bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, so don't don't do that, people. Just support the change. It's it's a good one. And there is another discussion on Reddit that's a little bit more respectful. It has more comments. It's been open longer. Um, so you can still go over there and, and put in your two cents if you want. Just don't be a flame baiter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, another proposal that I found interesting this week uh, has to do with buffer.bytes. Um, so buffer.bytes is a pretty simple function. What does it do, Jonathan? It returns a buffer in the form of a byte slice. So that's what you think it does, but in reality, uh-huh. it's a huge security hole that can, you know, <gasps> it can jump through the bytes and, and hack your keylogger and whatever. So no, not really. Uh, there's an interesting <laughs> proposal. Uh, it was closed um, that sort of shows uh, I, a lot of interesting stuff about Go, I think. So when you call bytes, like John said, returns bytes uh, of the internal buffer. And in the current implementation, the capacity is the full capacity of the internal storage of the buffer. So what that means, let's say I have a really big buffer. I have a, I, I loaded an image file onto a buffer. Mm-hmm. If the file was two kilobytes, that doesn't mean that the buffer size uh, that was allocated is two kilobytes, right? That's what's used. Right. But the actual capacity might be bigger, and oftentimes it's uh, two times bigger because uh, it will allocate two to the power of how many you need. And if I have two kilobytes and one extra byte, I'll have four. Or if you're using a buffer pool, it might even be megabytes. Yeah, totally. Um, and currently, this information is revealed. When you call bytes, uh, you get the capacity. Uh, the full capacity of the internal storage, uh, which has some issues. Uh, this proposal has been closed. Um, Russ just uh, put it on the meeting and then decided it seems infeasible. Uh, the logic is correct. Um, Dolman, uh, Olivier Mengay, who wrote this uh, from, uh, from Paris, is correct. This is security primitive, uh, but this is not strong enough to become a vulnerability on its own. Uh, and also changing it will be a breaking change. Um, mm-hmm. It has been before uh, there was a function called available buffer, which was added in 2021. Uh, this was used. So if this will change, it will break programs that use, you know, misuse the result to know the internal capacity. Uh, so a very interesting proposal, but it was closed. And I don't know if there will be a security issue that's generated from bytes.buffer, perhaps this will be a breaking change. Uh, but not right now. Right now it's uh, closed because it doesn't seem like it's a, a strong enough primitive to turn into a security vulnerability. At the end of the day, it does leak information, but it only leaks the capacity of an internal buffer, which is not good enough to to start running code and hacking uh, your machine. Um, you had a proposal you were excited about. Yeah, on the topic of leaking information, sometimes we want to leak information. And there's a new proposal that uh, tries to leak information in a useful way. Uh, it's about uh, extending the uh, Go cache. Uh, so when you build a Go program, of course, it caches the results that it can on disk. So that if you run it again, uh, it only has to recompile any files that have changed since your last co- compilation, which is one of the reasons that Go compiles so quickly. The proposal is to allow the Go compiler to use an external tool to do that caching for you. You might think, why would I care about that? Well, the reason is because then you can tie it into your CI/CD pipeline so that you could use, for example, GitHub Actions cache capability or, or whatever, you know, S3 bucket or something like that to cache your, your builds to get pr- improved com- compilation times in your, uh, in your Docker builds or your CI/CD pipeline. So I'm kind of excited about this. I think it could be pretty cool. It is super cool. I know that many organizations, including you know my previous company, we try to set up joint caches for stuff. Um, and for some things, it worked pretty well. Um, but the only solution that we've figured that works consistently is using Docker. Like instead of building on your own machine, which you know is fun and fast and you can do on save, you share like Docker layers 
that have mm-hmm. all the everything uh, cached already. And if you didn't change anything within the layers, you can share those layers, um, which is which is okay. It works, but obviously a lot more involved and a lot slower than just uh, sharing, uh, you know, the Go cache itself. Uh, I think this is a really, really cool proposal. Um, but on the other hand, I'm really worried about, uh, you know, whenever you share caches and whenever you distribute that stuff, uh, bugs, you know, you compiled with the same Git hash and it came out to the same hash somehow because it doesn't test for, mm-hmm. I don't know, the embedded files, but you changed mm-hmm. the embedded JSON file that got into the binary and then I'm I'm using a different version than I'm actually think I'm using, or some you know, sorry, edge cases are, are are scary to me. I'm not uh, running optimization. You are an optimization. We have different compiler versions. We have different architectures. I don't know. This stuff can mess up really fast. It almost sounds like you're saying that cache invalidation might be one of the hard problems in computer science. I I, I would say it's uh, one of the two hard problems, uh, yeah. according including off by one errors and naming things. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's super difficult. Like, uh, unlike yeah. many proposals, which are very simple, straightforward, you know, almost I think any uh, entry-level Go developer can probably take a, a stab at implementing um, such an option. This seems super hard. I wouldn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Uh, but obviously, once it's done, I'll, I'll, I'd love to use it and, and complain whenever it, it doesn't work, right? <laughs> Uh, the good news is that Brad Fitzpatrick has already implemented it uh, in his test branch, and he's using it uh, successfully, he claims. And it looks like this will probably be added in Go, I don't know, 121 or 122 as an experiment. So it won't be an on by default, but you can play with it if you want to. That's super interesting. I'll definitely uh, link this uh, issue to my uh, previous Go team. And if you're listening uh, and you have a Go team at work or something, don't forget to you know mark this uh, proposal. And, and turn that experiment on for your team. Anything that can save devs build times is, is great because now they can uh, get on and waste time on other stuff like waiting for the coffee machine to get warm or waiting for open AI APIs to go back online. You know, Whatever these people do at their work. <laughs> or waiting for us to get to the next topic, which is about semantic diff. Yeah. All right, so we're done with How's that, that for a segue? <laughs> <laughs> That's, I, I feel attacked. <laughs> All right, I'm getting on to the next thing. Sorry, boss. Y'all don't know this because we sound uh, very nice on uh, on microphone, but Jonathan is a is a ruthless uh, dictator in this podcast. You can't see my whip, but it comes out whenever I need it to. (laughs) Even the logo of Riverside is sort of like. All right, all right. Let's get back on track. Uh, The first thing we found interesting: if you use semantic diff. Uh, which is uh, VS Code extensions that uh, shows the diff not just uh, with lines but with semantic difference in your language, it now supports Go. Um, In practice, it means you can reformat uh, with Go format and semantic diff should display an empty diff, right? If you run Go format on a file that's not Go formatted, it will ignore it in semantic diff, which is great. Maybe I ran go fumped instead of go fumped yeah. uh, after Jonathan taught me about it. And then the diffs are really ugly, right? And yeah. who cares about that? So semantic diff helps a lot with that. I use it in uh, I used it in code reviews, which is fun. Instead of looking at the GitHub back at GitHub pull request and looking at a ton of changes that I don't care about, just look at semantic diff. So now it supports Go. Go install it. So one last uh, release this week before we start to wind down for the day. Um, just two days ago, Rudis, is that how that's pronounced? <laughs> I was have released. No idea. <laughs> I, I, I imagine it, you know, with a Spanish uh, flavor. Ruidis. Ruidis? I don't know. How, I don't, yeah, that's not Spanish. <laughs> anyway, whatever it is, it's R-U-E-I-D-I-S. Ruidis? Ruidis? I don't know. <laughs> Um, it's a fast Go Redis client that does auto pipelining and supports client-side caching. And this was just released, version 1.0.3 was released two days ago by Redis. So this is an official project. It's not just some hobby project. Um, and it's been running around for a while. It's a fairly new project, it looks like. Uh, it looks like the oldest commit was a few months ago, eight months ago, maybe. 
Um, but it's been recently released, uh, this new version. So if you use Redis and you need auto pipelining and client-side caching, this is probably something you should check out. And finally, one other thing we saw around the community was someone asking on the Go Slack, yo, anyone knows any good new Go podcasts? Something to listen to about Go? Um, and someone named, I don't know how to pronounce it, jo- Jonathan? Jo- jo- Jonathan? Jonathan? <laughs> yeah, so you answered. So let's yeah. uh, shout out some other Go podcasts because there's some great content other that you should definitely check out other than our uh, podcast. Yeah, so this was on the, the Rand's Leadership Slack, which is a great place if you are uh, in tech leadership. It's a great Slack community. Uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. But the four podcasts that I'm aware of, there's only four English language podcasts that are in active production about Go. The first and probably the most popular is Go Time. I, I, I'm assuming most popular. I haven't seen numbers. I'm, I'm judging this based on how much commentary I see in the community about it. But I think Go Time is probably the most popular. Uh, Go Podcast, which is a clever name. Uh, Go space podcast with, in, with uh, parentheses. So as though you're launching your podcast in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, Arden Labs has one. They're the uh, one of the sponsors, if not the sponsor of the official Go for Slack. Um, so they host their own podcast. Um, I think Bill Kennedy is is on that podcast. Um, and then, of course, this one, which needs no introduction. So check out those other three also. They're, they're great resources. <laughs> uh, so that wraps it up for this week. We have so many things to talk about. Jonathan and I talked at the beginning of the episode. We were afraid that, you know, we're not going to have enough Go news every week. But the opposite is what's happening. We have like, I don't know, 15 stuff every week that we just don't include because we don't have time. Um, so, you know, if you do want us to talk about stuff that interests you and we maybe missed or we maybe decided to omit because we don't have time, let's go talk about it in our Slack community. And we're going to tell you about that community, about other interesting stuff going on our store uh, in the ad break coming up real soon. Uh, and after the ad break, we have a super interesting interview with Lane Wagner. Who's that? Lane Wagner is a... Uh, I sh- I will, I'll call him an educator. He runs boot.dev, which uh, does Go and Python and other in JavaScript training, basically web training, you know, back-end developer web training. Um, so we're going to have an interview with him about what that does, um, what he does, and how you could take advantage of, of his knowledge. All right. So we'll see you during and after the break. Until then. Ba-da-da. <laughs> If that line if that lines up well, maybe we can put it on the episode. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Start, start, please start. All right. Welcome to our amazing ad break, where we tell you all about the amazing things you should buy and spend your time and money on, which usually is a very short list here. But it's not anymore because we have a new store and we're selling merch and it's amazing. Yeah, thanks you to want- people who already bought some stuff. That's so exciting. We're not gonna expose your names, but we have five real cups. Shipping to five real people. Oh my we, god! We think. Yeah, we think it could it could have been ChatGPT ordering these. We we don't know for certain, but as long as it pays, I'm I'm totally down. No problem. Okay. And if you want to get merch for yourself and you don't want to miss out on this hype train, uh, please go check out store.capago.dev. Absolutely, we have amazing selection of two or three things you can get there. <laughs> yeah, we have like stickers and a cup. Yeah. Oh, and a wireless charger. <clears throat> Yeah. Yes. So we, ha- we yes. do actually have three things. <laughs> we do have three things. And, and, and there's two versions of the sticker. So there's four things if you really think about it. <laughs> That's really stretching <laughs> it. <laughs> and you can rotate the sticker in Ooh, you know, 360 degrees. You can also hold the cup upside down. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. What else can we talk about before we move on to our interview? How people can reach us. Yes. Well, we already know about store.cupago.dev, but if you want to talk to us, not just give us money, you can go to justcupago.dev. You can see our website there, all of our social media links. We're on Twitter. We're on Mastodon. Uh, we're individually on LinkedIn, but we don't have any official Cupago presence there. But you can reach us there. And you can email us, news at cupago.dev, or you can talk to us on Slack. We're on the official Gophers Slack in the channel Cupago uh, Kebab Case. If you like the show, please leave a review on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, um, and also share it with uh, 
co-workers, co-students, colleagues, um, your co-op. Co-routines? Your, oh, wait, that's Python. Your co-routines. No, no, no. Not here. Uh, <laughs> I've had enough of a Python this week. Thank you. <laughs> um, one other thing uh, worth mentioning that's going to be happening on the Kappago Slack uh, is we've been toying with the idea of doing a live stream episode, recording an episode mm-hmm. live with uh, you all, uh, and you can chat with us while it's happening. Uh, if you want to join us while recording and hear all the curses and the yelling and the whips, um, <laughs> then uh, come to the Slack and let us know. And if enough people want to join, we'll make it happen. No problem. Yeah, sounds like fun. Of course, when you do a live stream, there's a lot of editing that has to happen afterwards. You have to cut out all the swear words and the whips and all that nasty stuff before you can really publish the episode. And we're looking for somebody who might be willing to help with that. So if you're interested in becoming an, our editor or you know somebody who's an excellent podcast editor and would be interested in that, um, especially if you're in the European time zone, that would be great. Reach out to us. See above contact details for information on how to reach us. Yeah, just rewind a bit. Yeah. And if you don't know how to rewind, this job is probably not for you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, Coming up, uh, we're done talking about all the commercial stuff. Coming up, we have a super interesting interview with uh, Lane Wagner. Um, So stick around. He has a ton of interesting stuff to talk about. Hey, everyone, and welcome back. Uh, You know, Jonathan, lately I've been on a learning craze. I've been learning something new every day. Uh, but it's easy for me. I'm already experienced. I don't know. I don't need anyone to guide me. You know what I mean? First of okay. all, we have the show where you uh, where berate kind me of, for not knowing stuff yeah, about Go. Yeah. How, how stupid could you be? You didn't know that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I need to prep uh, for, for the episode. But other than that, you know, I, I have my projects. I have a ton of experience I can rely on. But I'm, I'm, I have a ton of friends who want to get into programming. I wish someone was here that could, you know, could help them out. Specifically backend. How many times yeah. can you learn to develop a site that no one teaches backend? Yeah, oh, everyone hey. teaches. Oh, oh, hi, Lane. Hi, hey, how's it going? <laughs> Good. Do you, do you know anybody who teaches backend programming? Uh, uh, not a soul, apart from not myself, a, yeah. of course. Oh, N- know thyself. <laughs> That's <laughs> all right. I. Uh, Hi, everyone. Uh, we're very uh, happy to host on this week's interview, Lane Wagner. Lane, what, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my name's Lane. I've been developing for, well, I've been writing code since uh, about 2010, and I've been writing Go since about 2015. Um I've worked as a back-end hiring manager, led a couple of different Go teams, and just a year ago went full-time on my side project. So I guess it was a side project, boot.dev, and now I'm kind of full-time founder. I've got one employee, and it's an e-learning platform for back-end development. And primarily, we teach Go. I love that you're using the .dev TLD, because that's what we use for our website, cupofgo.dev. And, and last week's interviewee, Adelina Simeon, her website is adelinasimeon.dev. So I think that might be a new rule for our guests from now on. You have to have a .dev domain name. It's such a I good think... domain name because like nothing's taken, or at least that's how yeah, it feels. For now. now yeah. After this episode, everyone's going to go out and buy dev names so they can be on our show. So I think if the, if the criteria is you have a dev domain, then almost all our interviewees probably have it. But if you have something on it, and it's not just a, you know, a domain that refers, yeah, next year, next year I'll get to that project, next year. Has to resolve to something yeah. custom. <laughs> well, that's great. Uh, what's boot.dev all about? Who's it aimed towards? Yeah, so uh, you said it best yourself. It's, uh, it's aimed towards backend developers. Um, it's kind of this self-paced fantasy game that takes you through you know all the different important backend concepts so the original idea for boot dev was much more kind of computer science focused but i've since kind of honed and tuned the idea to be a little more career focused so now it's like okay i teach you everything that i think you need to know to become a successful backend developer and it just so happens that i think you actually do need to know a decent amount of cs in there we do data structures and algorithms um you know one of our approaches is like this is going to take 
a bit longer than maybe you know other ed tech or boot camp uh, kind of programs market to you, right? We're not saying three to six months. We're saying six to 12 or six to 18 months is realistically how long it's going to take to learn all of this stuff. We, we start students in Python, um, teach a bunch of coding basics, like I said, data structures, algorithms, uh, kind of OOP fundamentals. And then we move into Go and talk about um, you know web servers, databases, uh, networking, that kind of stuff. I heard you say you start with Python, and then I thought you started to say, and you teach basic, and I was getting excited for a second there, but then I, I realized that's not what you said. It's 2023. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like teaching things that are applicable to uh, <laughs> So to you, mentioned it's, uh, you mentioned the word fantasy, you mentioned the word game. Uh, going into the about page, the first thing you say is that coding is fun. I couldn't agree more. Um, and it's really refreshing to see, you know, the focus on the emotions that coding can bring and not just the paycheck. Um, mm-hmm. What made you yeah. focus on that instead of, you know, come learn backend with me because backend developers have a higher average salary of XYZ than, I don't know, frontend. Right. So most people that are getting into coding in my experience, like, they don't fail because they don't have access to information right like information at this point is basically free you can like become a doctor on wikipedia i mean you like won't get the license but uh (laughs) you can like learn all this (laughs) stuff right um people don't fail um you know because they don't have the resources they're they're failing quote unquote because they uh they give up right like it it gets Mm -hmm. really hard like there's a lot of stuff you have to learn before you're generally speaking kind of qualified for an entry-level job and it can become intimidating and it can be hard but the interesting thing is almost everyone who starts has a lot of fun right at the beginning um and generally speaking when things are working it's it's really fun you have the kind of this inherent game in coding of a tight feedback loop right you have this small problem you're working on you write some code you run the code you see if it I don't know, passes the test or does the thing you expect it to do. Um, and and you get kind of this game loop. The only reason um, it be- becomes not fun <laughs> is when you like hit walls that you can't overcome or the resources that you're following along with, you have a hard time seeing why this would apply to what mm. you actually need to know. That could be a very frustrating feeling, right? Like I'm learning this thing and I have no idea where I would ever use it in a real application. Um, so. At Boot Dev, we teach all of that, in my opinion, important theoretical stuff that a lot of times boot camps are, are skipping over. But I, we try to do our best to make it as fun as possible. And to always couch it in like real world practicality. Like this is, you know, what a binary tree is. And oh, that's how databases work, right? And that's why when we select your user record, it's going to be very, very fast. You'll be able to load your page very quickly, that kind of stuff. Talking about fast feedback loops, one of the things I've experienced is that people hate to learn testing because it sounds super frustrating. Uh, But the moment you teach juniors how to test, how to write a single unit test, they they freak out because the loop is so fast and it's green and red and it's very (laughs) easy to to work with that. Um, Seems like you take, or I don't know if you, but like boot to dev takes uh, an even stronger approach to that. And like you have stages and you go through the stage. It really feels like, again, even with the background, I don't know how well this will carry since this is an audio show, but like the background of the site just looks like a video game cover of the latest Unreal 5 release, you know, adventure game, open world, uh, go grab your loot kind of thing. It looks like Baldur's Gate to me, honestly. That's the first thing that comes to my mind. Is oh, this is Baldur's Gate, Baldur's Gate Twelve or something? <laughs> the the mid journey prompts I use to generate those images are like, uh, let's see, World of Warcraft, Lord of the Rings, Magic the Gathering. Uh, uh, so yeah, we're getting kind of the fantasy video game vibe. Uh, we're all, all into AI generated uh, icons. The logo for the show is uh, AI generated as well. No way! You guys' logo is cool. awesome. That's. <laughs> That's really yeah. cool. It's that might be another requirement for our guests. You have to have an AI-generated logo. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't figure out how to do an AI-generated logo for Boot Dev because, like, Midjourney does really poorly with text, um, yeah. and I wanted it to. You know how most video games have their text in the logo. Mm, yeah. But, uh, but yeah. 
I'm sorry. It, now I forgot what better. the question was. You, you had a question for me, Shay, and like then we just talked about art. Um, first of all, that's great. But uh, what I what I you mentioned that the tight feedback loops are are a huge part of uh, learning. Why you're learning is fun, and it seems like you're trying to keep that uh, alive throughout the entire course, which um, is not short. Like the career path, just walking through it here. Uh, like you said, uh, Python. And, you know, when I say Python, uh, it's 143 lessons in the course. Uh, or, for example, the Go part is 168. Um, and it's obviously, I like Go better. Uh, and you're correct to do so. <laughs> um, how do you keep the tight feedback loops coming over a six month or, you know, 12 month learning period? Yeah, that's so that's a good question. And, and to be honest, like it, it, it's a little tricky. So early on in the course, so we start students in Python um, to teach like coding basics and, and uh, data structures and algorithms. Those lessons are much simpler. And, and, and a lot of times it's like a one line code change to get, you know, the test case to pass and, you know, to be able to move on. Um, as you move throughout the course, um, not everything in the program is that same like uh, format of write some code in the browser, run the code, uh, see if it passes. Um, we've it's my, my employee and I joke, we basically had to build custom technology for almost every course because we're really passionate about the idea that like learning SQL is very different than learning Python and you're going to need to interact with it in a different way. Um, mm -hmm. And kind of as you get down towards the bottom of the career path, um, it's a lot more project-based. So you're building stuff on your own machine. We're kicking you out of the browser, out of the sandbox, and you actually have to do some stuff, right, with the command line. And that's where it gets tough. And I think really all you can do is get people through, now I'm just like speaking from an educator's perspective, but like mm -hmm. you really need to get people through that first one or two months. You know, the retention curve on people like learning to code, it, like it has like a really steep fall off after like, two or three weeks um, so you can get people through four to eight weeks and and now they're comfortable and they're starting to get all these different primitives like loops um then they can actually trouble their way through stuff right they can you know i mean i mean we know how it is right like when you're working at a job sometimes you're beating your head against a specific problem for like weeks before you see any measurable progress um but the only reason that you're able to put up with that is because like you understand that you are making progress even if there aren't new tests passing every day so i guess to ask your question we front load the dopamine hits early to get you through that hard stuff and to get you understanding the basic concepts and later you just it's just like any other you know engineering job you kind of have to puzzle your way through uh larger projects yeah, it works for me with uh, Duolingo. I'm on a 108-day streak. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's like, yeah, dopamine, I'm, I'm cruising through the leaderboards, I'm learning another language. And it's personally important to me, so it's easy to keep the motivation. Um, but sometimes it, it's it's uh, the other way around. Like, where's my dopamine? I need to <laughs> I need to continue. But as long as I'm continuing, that what's ma that's what matters, right? So, so my employee and I were just like having a deep discussion about this last week. So we have a bunch of achievements in the app you and have roles a that you unlock. Yeah, we have a leaderboard. Um, and, and we recently like redid a bunch of achievements. The interesting thing about like our achievement system at present is, like I said, it's mostly front loaded. So like if you're doing the entire career path, you'll actually unlock most of the achievements and roles about halfway through. And mm. we're like, okay, we need to like extend this so that there's more stuff to do later. Um, and we are like going to do that. But the interesting thing is we also found like I, I was listening to this psychology podcast and you actually do want to start to take that stuff away because you want people to be intrinsically motivated to learn new stuff rather than extrinsically motivated by all of the confetti and the achievements. Right. So it's like the dopamine again, like gets you in the door and gets you learning, gets you going. Um, but afterwards you just you actually just want people like having fun writing code and that's the primary objective i like that i mean I, so i i've never been a big fan of duolingo i've played with it but i've done some other language learning stuff years ago when i was and i was start, i was building my own language learning app uh, and i was basing it on this spaced repetition concept which you probably at least heard of yeah um which is very commonly used for flashcard type stuff, whether it's languages or learning just facts about stuff. But I think the general concept uh, makes sense to almost any sort of uh, 
learning uh, approach. You know, you, you, you need to learn something and then you need to be refreshed about that thing at some interval, but that interval gets longer and longer as time goes by. And I imagine that there's a similar curve to where you need to give people rewards for something. Um, you know, or, or you, you know, when, when you, you know, every, every mobile app, e- even games on, on consoles these days, you know, like you, you, you finish the tutorial and you get an award. Yeah. <laughs> like I haven't even done anything yet, but I got an award for, you know, whatever. And then you start playing and, you know, 10 minutes later you get an award for, Oh, you, you, you collected a gold coin or whatever the thing is. And then, you know, th- those things get more and more fr- uh, infrequent, you know, and I've been playing, um, you know, whatever my latest game is. And I've, you know, I, I see on my PlayStation, I have collected whatever, you know, 75% of available rewards in this game. And now it's weeks between time. You know, I don't play that often. I'm not, you know, I, I play a couple hours, maybe, maybe an hour or two a day, four days a week or something like that. Uh, so I was not really a hardcore gamer, but still it's weeks or longer between rewards now, whereas it used to be, you know, my first session I would get four. So I, I can really right. see how that, that's the way that at least works in other games. I'm, I'm sure there's psychology behind it. If, if Sony thinks it's a good idea, there must be some evidence. <laughs> yeah, we, we actually like, carbon copied world of warcraft's classics leveling okay. system for our game like straight carbon copy and i went and read like they published some research about why they did it the way they did it you'd think it's like a straight up formula you get this amount of xp you level up this many times right but actually it's not it's very carefully designed like levels 1 to 18 you have a certain kind of growth factor and then it like slows down because they they decided around level 18 in world of warcraft was when you need to you know grind it out for a bit and it's really satisfying mm-hmm. to have to put in that work um, so we haven't done that level of optimization yet but it, yeah, you know, yeah. people are looking into this stuff for sure all right so lane <laughs> um, one thing that um, i would like to ask you about the go you know course you go through a bunch of topics and rather than asking you which topics you go through which topics did you have to leave out because you have 168 lessons but obviously you or challenges i should say uh but obviously you can't go through everything and every library that the language has to offer and every structure and every sort of system so how did you decide what to leave in yeah that's a really good question and thankfully the answer is actually that in go i was able to go way more in depth than i did with python or or the little tiny bit of javascript that's in there because by the time you get down to the go stuff you've learned all the basics right Mm -hmm. so i don't need to like worry too much about like you're not ready for this um which is great um what did i leave out in go so First things first, let me just like cover, there, there's three Go courses on the platform at the moment. There's a there's the Learn Go course, which is like the syntax of Go, right? The basics of Go, how it works as a language. Um, then we teach web servers in Go. So you're building like a CRUD application, um, a RESTful API, right? JSON API. Um, and then we also have a cryptography course in Go, um, which is kind of like an elective at the end of the, at the, end of the learning path. What I don't do um, is go super in depth on lots of different like libraries and framework options. Um, the the web servers course is really the f- well, it is the first time that you'll actually use any external tooling to the standard library. So the the Learn Go course itself is all just standard library. Like you know, just to name a few, we're, we're like we got chapters like you know variables, functions, structs, interfaces, errors. Like we're just going over the primitives, really. And there's 168 exercises of that. There's actually a good amount of stuff to to cover because it's also the first time I'm, I'm introducing students to like concurrency, right? And mm-hmm. uh, you know, channels, mutexes, things like that. The web servers course, I'm using two libraries at the moment that I'm a big, actually three libraries that I'm a really big fan of. Um, SQLC for SQL stuff. Um, it's a pretty lightweight, like code generation library for SQL. Um, Goose, which is a migration tool. And um, I'm using the Chi router. And I'm very specifically leaving out, this is, I guess, to answer your question, omitting any sort of like more heavy handed frameworks. Um, and, and the main reason for that comes from personal experience. I actually learned web development the first time uh, in Django, um, in the Python ecosystem. And I think it really set me back. It was actually really challenging for me to understand what the heck was going on. I'm the kind of person that like, I learned something and I want to at least like, I want to at least understand like one level down kind of what's happening. And I was just being told in tutorials like, oh, you need to like, you know, add this configuration thing because it makes your app 
more secure. And I'm like, why? Like, I don't, I don't even understand how authentication works in my own app. Like, you know, <laughs> like I, I, I just installed this stuff. Um, so I, I definitely take the opposite approach of like, let's avoid the frameworks. Let's use smaller tools so that we can understand their surface area. And, uh, and, and so I do end up kind of omitting some of the, you know, what, what some people would consider like, you know, nice, um, anti-boilerplate stuff, um, just because I want you writing boilerplate for the first, uh, for the first couple times. I think that makes a lot of sense. SQLC is, is transferable. I think it's, it's a transferable skill. Like if you start with SQLC, you can transition into GORM or bun uptrace or like stuff like that and understand what these tools are doing for you, but definitely mm -hmm. not the other way around. Uh, hmm. And it, until some bug, you know, in GRM bites you in the ass, and you're like, "What's happening?" Yeah, uh, then you have to enable the debug log everywhere. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I, every time I'm talking to people about RMs, I'm mentioning that meme where, like, yeah, I should just learn SQL, and then the bell curve goes up, and it's like all the RMs and the frameworks and whatever, and the <laughs> yeah. abstractions, and at the end, just use SQL again. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, that's definitely where I've where I've landed over the years. Yeah, I, we, I can see it because there's a learn SQL uh, the course in your backend development course, which some people would say is, is heresy. Uh, but I, I totally agree <laughs> that it belongs there. I can't uh, imagine awesome. the danger of having like no one on your backend engineering team that's like not a SQL expert. <laughs> like I can't imagine just having the entire team rely on an ORM. <laughs> And, and at least not having someone that knows what they're doing with kind of yeah. what's going on under the hood. Um, so I'll be completely honest here. My, I'm, not, I'm super bad at SQL. And in my last team, we weren't great. Like, you know, we knew SQL basics, but no one knew uh, like the expert stuff. What's auto vacuum or whatever. Um, and we partnered with some uh, learning uh, company. They do one-on-one -on -one lessons. So it's not like... Uh, self-guided uh, courses. Um, it's one-on-one -on -one lessons with instructors, so it's all more expensive. Um, and they came and taught the team some some stuff. And a day after they taught us, for example, about vacuum and out of vacuum, we had a bug in production about vacuum and out of vacuum. And I was like, <laughs> "Whew!" <laughs> so it's That's great awesome. to see it on the on the on the career path. Yeah, yeah, totally. Are you still uh, developing additional courses, or is this pretty well set? I mean, I imagine you at least update the existing courses as language features change. But what does the future look like in terms of the content? Yeah, so um, we update the courses a lot. Okay. I get about seventy tickets a week um, to update. Wow. Like, like, like we have a very tight and feedback loop in the mm -hmm. app of like anyone can submit any issue with any exercise. So people are submitting like tiny typos or, or grammar mistakes or like, I think this explanation could be better if. And so we actually have to sink a lot of time in like updating the courses, making them really, really good. And it's actually pretty easy because they're mostly text-based. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, making updates is pretty quick. Um, is it complete? Definitely not. Um, on the sidebar, I don't know if you're on that like main track page. On the sidebar, there's a, a roadmap of like what we plan to build. It's hosted mm -hmm. on GitHub, um, and there's a lot of kind of going deeper courses that we want to cover. Things like distributed systems, pub sub architectures, um, NoSQL databases. What's actually going to live in the career path versus what's going to be considered an elective is still kind of up in the air. And, and mm. I would say that for the most part, like the, the the bones of the career path itself are pretty well set. There's really mm -hmm. only a couple of things I want to add to that. Um, and then it's like the world of backend development and, and DevOps is huge. So there's gonna be all this stuff that you can and should learn even after kind of getting that entry level job. One thing you mentioned about the getting an entry-level job, which I found interesting. I think many people would be attracted to boot.dev or you know other e-learning platforms as, oh, I, I, I heard like my programmer friend works from home. Uh, they work remote, they're a contractor. Looks awesome. Uh, I, I, I don't like my current job. I don't like my current office. I don't like my current coworkers. I, I feel demotivated, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of the reasons why people want to transition into programming, not just because it's fun. Usually they discover it's fun a bit later. Um, but in your site's philosophy, you mentioned that you need to get an on-site full-time job if possible. Um, so what's the reasoning behind that? Because it could sort of perhaps contradicts yeah. the reason some people want to get into software development. 
Yeah, great question. I get asked this a ton. And and I do want to just ver- very quickly point out, this is like advice mostly for people that are in a similar situation to me. So like I live in the United States, um, right? I got my first job in my early 20s. Um, it may be different if you're like, you know, I don't know, living abroad or, or somewhere where there aren't any local jobs. But the reason I recommend local jobs is you'll learn so much faster as a junior developer if you're with sitting with a team for that first year, right? You're having lunch with them, you're hanging out, you're able to literally turn around and talk to someone about a problem that you're having rather than having to schedule a Zoom call. Um, in my experience, you just get a, a much more kind of collaborative, uh, tight feedback loop if you're in the office working with folks for that first job. Now, I, I'm not trying to say you should never work remote. Um, I definitely think- Yes, you are. You hate so. remote work. I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> As I like like look around. Like, I work from home. Uh, <laughs> it's also like actually a lot harder to get a remote job as a junior dev. Um, yes. Companies are, are more skeptical of your ability to work remote if it's your first job. And when you apply local, the pool of candidates you're competing against is much, much smaller. Right. When I apply for a job that is, uh, you know, requires that I'm here in, uh, you know, American Fork, Utah, um, I'm competing mm-hmm. against like three other developers. When I apply to a, you know, uh, a job position has been open to the world, I'm, I'm applying against 200 other people. So there's a few few reasons for that. Not huge uh, go meetups in Utah. <laughs> we actually do have one, and I've I've been a couple times. I think we get like 20 people to show up. It's not it's not bad. Not bad at all. Not bad mm-hmm. at all. Um, cool. Well, uh, other than uh, boot dev, which we talked about a lot, is there anything else uh, you think we should mention that we forgot to mention that uh, people should check out, people should should read, people should click? Uh, yeah, the other thing is I've started a podcast. Um, it is called Back End Banter. Uh, none of the episodes have been released yet. I've recorded eight of them so far. I'm getting thematic fantasy music made, so that's holding me back just a little bit but they'll be they should you know start coming out next week or the week after so um, definitely keep an eye out for that again it's called back-end banter we'll be talking about go and uh, back-end development that's awesome Awesome. welcome welcome to the space of uh, back-end related uh, podcasts (laughs) thank you there's not enough of us is what I found (laughs) I I do have a couple follow-up questions before we jump to the to the conclusion because we've been talking about uh, some of the the benefits to, to courses like this for, for beginner developers. Uh, is boot.dev specifically for beginner developers or would it be something, maybe a front-end developer who wants to learn back-end or maybe you've learned Java and you want to learn these new technologies? Who, who, who's the target audience there? That's actually a really good question. So um, like to, to peel back the onion a little bit and, and tell you about like my audience demographics, actually about 50%. So the biggest like single segment of boot dev customers um, are people with some coding experience. So I think like less than six months coding experience. Usually um, they've done a lot of say like IT or sysadmin or maybe even like kind of DevOpsy work. And now they're interested in like you know, learning more about code and the application side of the stack. Um, it, it could be Java, it could be something else. But like the point is a, a good number of our students have written code before. About 25% have never written code before. And about 25% actually are already professional developers that are just like, you know, looking to learn a new technology or go back and learn, you know, some CS concepts that they didn't, you know, maybe they didn't go to school Um mm-hmm for development um, and that kind of stuff. So it is a little more broad in that way. Um, So really, if you're interested in learning Go or you're interested in kind of brushing up on the fundamentals of backend development, things like data structures, algorithms, databases, HTTP, um, then there's very likely a course for you, even if maybe the entire career path isn't something that you need. And can you sort of pick and choose? Like if if I'm already a Python expert, but I want to learn Go, can I just do the Go related courses? Yeah, so at the moment, everything is membership related. So you can pay by the month, you can pay by the year, or you can buy a lifetime. Um, so if you're just interested in a course or two, I would recommend just getting a monthly membership for you know mm-hmm. a month or so and uh, just doing the courses that are interesting to you. Cool. And then I wanted to ask another question that I, I kind of asked a similar question a f- couple of weeks ago when I interviewed some uh, Go recruiters, because um, I think you probably have a unique perspective on this. Um, what advice can you offer to people who are trying to get their first Go-related job? Uh, maybe maybe it's their first programming job 
at all what they wanted to go or maybe they've already been doing java or python or something and they're trying to get their foot in the door as a go developer do you have any advice you can offer based on your experience yeah so the really nice thing about go and i think this is still true i try to keep a pretty you know good pulse on the market is that it's it's still a smaller language and and people don't realize that that's actually a huge advantage um you know you think oh i need to be learning javascript or python because like you know there's more job applications for JavaScript and Python. But the interesting thing is when you apply for a JavaScript or Python job, again, there's like hundreds of candidates. When you apply for a Go job, there's like 10. And this yeah. like, this is a very stark example. My last job, I would literally put up a job, uh, a job posting for a Go developer and I would get 10 applications and my coworker who ran our JavaScript kind of front end side of the stack would get 150 applications. It's yeah. so like, you already are at a pretty good advantage. Um, but if you don't have a formal education, like a CS education, which is what uh, you know a lot of times backend developers will have, you just need to be very project-based, in my opinion. Like you need to have a lot of stuff you can point to and say, "Look, I built this thing, right? Look, I built this library in Go. Look, I built this, uh, you know, this server, and I stood it up here, and it's, it's, you know, aggregating some blog posts or, or whatever it's doing. Look, I built this command line tool that's useful and solves X Y Z problem." Um, I think that's your biggest tool is is relying on open source contributions and real tangible projects that you can build and show to hiring managers. Um, and 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 like I said, I think you're you're at a pretty good advantage uh, just being in a, a slightly more niche language like Go. Awesome. All right. So let's uh, let's wrap up then. Um, I think we warned you ahead of time. We always ask our guests two questions. The first one is: someone holds a gun to your head and says, "Lane, you have to remove a feature from Go. What would it be?" And I'm assuming removing all of the tutorials about GoPath pre 1.13 doesn't count. <laughs> Probably not. I think that feature has already been officially deprecated for a very long time. But yes, that would be great to get rid of that. <laughs> yeah, if I could, if I could get rid of that, that would easily be number one because I, I, I teach a ton of students, and that's always a question. Yes, they're like, I good, heard about this GoPath thing. Oh my god, it's it's terrible. Um, okay, so what I would remove is definitely reflection. The idea of runtime reflection, right? Parsing reflect tags in, you know, structs to get like mm -hmm. a JSON structure and things like that. Um, I think it's a very dangerous runtime thing to do. That kind of stuff I feel like should definitely be done at compile time. Um, so mm. yeah, I I'd look into restructuring however, uh, you know, reflection works under the hood. I like that answer. So, so you can do it uh, compile time if you really work hard, but it's so easy to use the struct tags. Um, I remember at my last job, we started using them for everything. And then you have a struct that like defines your the JSON, the protobuf, the database structure, and the documentation, and the validation, and we would go like... You have like three kilobytes of struct tag per field. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to be clear, I wouldn't remove them without having a new solution because like that's sure. the way we do things right now. Um, right, but yeah. I don't, yeah, like I said, I don't love the way that it's handled at runtime. I mean, I'm a huge type safety person. Like I would much rather handle this stuff at compile time. Yeah. Like and that. on the flip side, what feature, uh, you know, from other languages or from other libraries or whatever would you add to Go? Yeah, this one's easy. Um, some types... So algebraic data types and pattern matching. Um, so if you're familiar Ooh. with Rust, this is kind of how their you know error checking works. Um, basically, the idea that you can have a type that is a union of other types. So I can say this is a I don't know HTTP response or an error, and like that's a type now, uh -huh. right? It's either this or that, and then you can write a match statement to say I have to handle every case, and it's exhaustive. Right, so mm -hmm. instead of a bunch of like if blocks that like you as a developer can screw up, you have a match statement that kind of forces you to handle every case. Again, just kind of adds um, some more static checking and static typing into the language to stop ourselves from shooting ourselves in the foot. Yeah, I like to it. forget one of the cases in uh, in the switch. <laughs> yeah, I think exactly. there's a GoLang CI lint thing that checks it for for enums. I'm not sure. Yeah, there is. I don't know how well it works. I've seen it though. It, it caught me a few times. That's why. Okay. <laughs> that's why I remember it because it always catches you. The the times where you forget to check all the enums is always like you know I already want to go home. Traffic is getting worse. I want to finish this code already, and you push it, and you're like, I don't need to lint it. It's fine. Go FMT took care of everything. And then it's like, no, you forgot one of the enum cases. <laughs> and I'm like, thank you, but also why damn you in the same. <laughs> 
this would also fix enums by the way if we had if we had some yeah. types we would have real enums which would be great yeah nice. uh great so thanks a lot lane for coming on one of your uh, many uh content uh, back-end content related audio shows <laughs> <laughs> thank you for having me this has been fun guys yeah sure how can people find you uh, online if they're interested in reaching out obviously boot.dev yeah, boot.dev, it's the name of the site and the domain name. Uh, definitely check that out. Uh, we're on YouTube at boot.dev. That's probably the second best place. Um, and then, like I said, the Backend Banter podcast as well. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Thanks. All right, so Lane is off. We're done with the interview. What a great guy. Uh, the site looks awesome. If you want to learn Go, if you want to learn more Go, definitely go check out boot.dev. And I think it's it's a really good project to support. Uh, it seems like it's coming from a place of, of real passion. Um, yep. And if you want more Lane in your life... And who doesn't? Who doesn't? Um, so there's a free nine-hour Go course on YouTube. It topped Reddit this week. Uh, so if you're on the Golang Reddit, you may have seen it already. Um, I don't know if it's good enough to go, you know, as an ASMR, go to sleep kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> but it is free nine hours of video content on Learning Go, which is just like way to go, Lane. Yeah. And also, I heard that he was in another podcast that we might yeah. recommend. So I actually met Lane uh, when he came on the Adventures in DevOps podcast, which we recorded uh, several weeks ago. But that episode just aired uh, over the weekend. So Adventures in DevOps, episode 162. If you want to hear Lane talk more about the DevOps side of backend development, then there's 57 minutes of Lane to hear there. It's not quite the nine hours you might be expecting, but it's still some good content. Yeah, so thanks a lot, Lane. Uh, really appreciate you coming on. It was super fun. And that wraps it up for this week. See you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>